Hello, this is Dr. Robert Yoho, and I have a remarkable guest here who's an MD, PhD, JD, and a physicist. It's Dr. Richard Fleming. And I have another podcast host, uh, James Rogowski. Rogowski. Correct Rogowski. me. Rogowski. Rogowski. Okay, I'm sorry. He always corrects me. Um, and he's going to start making fun of my name pretty soon. But uh, the, these guys have a tremendous bandwidth, uh, and I'm... I'm honored to be among people like this. Um, Dr. Fleming is a PhD, MD, JD, who is a physicist, and the physicists regard the rest of science as stamp collecting. Uh, James, I have learned by observing him, has an incredible bandwidth also because he's writing and doing things that I don't seem to have the energy for, even though I'm working 60, 70 hours a week. But Dr. Fleming has is uh, one of the people who is working on the legal end of things, and Everyone else seems to be playing whack-a-mole about all the problems these people are um, uh, inciting, uh, you know, the psychopaths we're dealing with. But Dr. Fleming is is trying to go to the root and put a hole in the dam so the water can get out. And uh, we, we, uh, uh, we've been observing Dr. Fleming. I saw him at a conference and watched him for three hours uh, a few months ago in Sacramento. So without further ado, um, I'm introducing James and Dr. Fleming, and I will try to keep my mouth shut because I've got the least uh, wattage of the three here. It's clear to me. Um, ahead, I will, I will dive, no. dive right in because I want to ask the Dr. Fleming, we, we've passed across just once before on a, a medical doctors for COVID ethics uh, um, presentation that you gave. And so I'm going to uh, hopefully ask you that same question again in the same manner um, at the end of this. But um, I, I, I'm a fan. I, I admire the work that you've been doing. So full disclosure, um, I want to I want to ask the hardest softball question that I could lead with. And I really do think it's actually a hard question, but you'll probably handle it really well. Of all of the many things that are going on right now, um, what do you see as a priority? Well, I think the priority right now is to address the the primary issue of how we got to where we are, which is gain of function. Uh, everything else that has uh, occupied so much time and attention for people is a consequence of the gain of function research and viral, biological, viral weapons that were developed. And so you can go uh, pick, uh, you can pick arguments, but you can pick it. Um, Quarantining, masking, medical management, vaccines, uh, other consequences that we see going on around the world uh, that may or may not play a role in that. And you could win any of those, and it won't change a thing. Uh, now, I would argue as a JD that I, whether people like it or not, could argue and win um, for the other side, if you will, on any one of those issues. If the premise is that there was no gain of function viral bioweapon. So the pivotal point has to be whether people want it to be or not. Um, I mean, this is part of physics. You know, it doesn't matter what you want reality to be or what question you want to answer. You have to address the primary issue or everything else is for not. So the primary issue is the critical gain of function. And then the issue that then comes up is, how do we address that? Well, you don't address it by telling people, well, you shouldn't have done that. 
Um, because if you tell me I shouldn't have done something that I've done, I'm just going to look at you and, and, you know, you don't even want to imagine what my thoughts are. Um, the reality is you have to prove that what led to everything in the last 35 plus months is a result of decades worth of illegal activities that were done probably under the veil of we're the good guys always because we're the United States. And so anything we choose to do is right. Well, you know, Nazi Germany felt the same way. And, and uh, I can tell you just taking another portion of my life as a SAG actor, you know, people have a question of how do you, how do you portray the bad guy and do it, you know, right. And the, and the answer to that question is you have to think about it from their perspective, which is they're not the bad guy. They're the good guy. They're doing what they believe is right. And if you do what you believe is right, even if somebody else thinks you're the bad guy, it's not going to impede your, your doing it. So the critical issue is addressing the violations of the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty, the violation of 18 U.S.C. 175, which is the federal statute additionally passed by Congress that says we don't build biological weapons in addressing 18 U.S.C. 175A, which says that if the United States is uh, attacked by biological weapons, then the government actually has a requirement to step in to protect the people. Um, and at the state level, Every one of these uh, consequences are, you know, boiled down to murder, attempted murder, manslaughter, reckless manslaughter, assault, false imprisonment, battery in the states where it's applicable, coercion, uh, and a variety of other state law violations. And so that is why we put together a website known as 10letters.org. So the number 10 followed by the word letters without a space, L-E-T-T-E-R-S.org where any American in any state can spend 90 minutes or 90 seconds of their, of their life to go online, build a letter, put their address, uh, enter it, uh, you know, generate a cover letter, and then download the letter for indictment document, which is five to six pages long, that basically lays out for the attorney general in your state and the governor in your state, uh, the information they need to know. Now, at this point in time, um, in addition to the affidavit that there's a link to on that uh, letter uh, for indictment, in addition to the uh, deposition that I gave under oath to a real court reporter, really under oath, to an attorney who asked me questions, and this attorney's argued before and won before the Supreme Court of the United States, and to the book, you know, is COVID-19 a bioweapon, a scientific and forensic investigation, which lays out where the money came from, where they went to, what papers were published that show which viral biological agents were built. Um, in addition to that, I'm accumulating also uh, a library that will be available for the attorneys. So it will go to the prosecuting attorneys and undoubtedly also defense attorneys which are right now are about 1,500 documents. So published research papers, federal documents, um, uh, correspondence to Big Pharma, their responses, uh, all, all the issues that are consequential issues like, you know, 
what were the ramifications of quarantining and masking and medications and which ones work, and as well as published research that I've actually published on which drugs do and don't work, and uh, and, and issues on on uh, on the vaccines themselves. Uh, enough data that lays out the crimes, as well as establishes that when people try to minimize this by saying, well, only one percent of the people die, you know you have to get your brain away from this 1% because if you get 1% of an inheritance and that inheritance is a dollar, you got a penny. But if that inheritance is $100 million, you got a million dollars. Well, the reality is here, there's 1.1 million dead Americans. And that turns out to be more dead Americans than we have lost soldiers in every war the United States has ever participated in since our inception. We have 1.5 million armed individuals in this country, which are more armed individuals than we've had military casualties in the history of this country. Go ahead. Um, it sounds like from a legal perspective, you're saying that what many people are doing is palliative care. And as mm. doctors, you guys are going to get in trouble with the medical boards for you know looking at trying to address the cause of the problem, which really isn't medical. It's our defense department, you know, doing bioweapons um, research. And um, the, the issue at hand is that if we don't address the actual causes of the problem, okay, and, and we're treating symptoms both on a medical um, uh, perspective and a legal perspective, all of those things, you know, may need to be done. Obviously, people who've been harmed, you know, need redress for, you know, the problems that they've had. Um, but can you talk <clears throat> a, about how, you know, medical boards have, you know, hamstrung doctors? Most doctors don't even think about addressing causes because it goes outside of protocol. Well, okay. So first, I would argue that addressing causes don't go outside the protocol because part of what you have to do to understand uh, the health problem that you're dealing with is to understand what issue you're dealing with. And that uh, goes to understanding the origins of, of, of these viruses. And the treatments are more than just kind of palliative because in 1994, I introduced at American Heart um, what people have misquoted numerous times, the inflammatory response, which is the inflammation of blood clotting that occurs that you have to, you have to treat if you have a patient who ends up with the disease COVID, because the difference between SARS-CoV-2 and COVID is one's a virus and one is a disease consequence. And, and actually SARS-CoV-2 is a series of viruses that we've shown using the PCR data. So as far as the medical boards are concerned, the medical boards, um, you know, the medical boards are, are obviously, they're different in every state. Uh, it's, it's a state principle. So every medical board has the option of taking the information to it and, and considering things. Uh, so let me use, for example, the state of Iowa um, has made a decision that if physicians choose to use uh, hydroxychloroquine, for example, for this infection, that you, you can report them, but they're not going to act on it. Okay. That's a decision that the Iowa board made. And, and I would argue that sometimes what is going on um, is that the physicians that are having some issues um, 
are having those issues in states where the scientific data is not being presented to the board for them to have the knowledge base to work with. I'm, I'm, you know, I understand this, this give and take. There's, you know, and it's a love-hate relationship, right? Um, we want the board to make sure the doctors are practicing good quality medicine and, and uh, not harming patients. But at the same time, when you're dealing with uh, this wide array of approaches, the boards do get somewhat stuck. Um, and so trying to be empathetic to their job and to lay a foundation for moving forward is, is kind of part and parcel of what we're dealing with. Uh, now, here's an example. For the last two years, we really haven't had medical conferences. You know, like, like most everybody, we got locked down. We didn't have large gatherings of people. But on the 8th of September in Orlando, I presented for the first time research that I had conducted during 2020 on a variety of drugs for the treatment of SARS-CoV-2 and if they got sick enough, COVID-19. And every doctor that, that participated in the session that I was at, um, First off, they were very kind. They said it was the best research that they'd seen during the conference, which I, I don't say that um, to pat myself on the back. I say that. Well, let me let me let me jump in. <laughs> let me let me jump in and pat you on pat you on the back. I don't mean to interrupt, but I do want to pat you on the back for this because the one time we we crossed paths, um, again, I had to leave and I got to ask you this question right at the very end of it. Um, the research that you did, I think, should be the template. You know, it, it's the flow chart for how an unknown should be um, examined. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of that research, if you could give a short, you know, synopsis of it, was basically predicated on, you know, we don't know what's going on. And so therefore there's a um, structure to the study. You know, it isn't about the drugs that were used in the study. It's partly right. about your, your, your patented process for analyzing the results. But it's really the the flow chart that the you know the WHO you know is going off in a completely totally different direction. They want to they literally want to be the arbiter of all things science related. If you could explain to people briefly the structure of the study that I think you began it early on, and I'm curious how you made it happen um, early in 2012, <laughs> maybe mid early to mid 2020. Um, I I think everybody needs to know. What you did, and, and it's the it, it's the um, structure of the study that is important, as well as the results. Right. Okay. So I want to make sure I answer that, but I want to. I'm just going to finish the point, which is that the physicians that then attended that conference didn't look at that data and say, "Well, that can't be right. Those drugs can't work." They looked at it and they said, "Oh, okay. Um, measured outcome data. Apparently, these things work. Right." Um, now, the Green Journal uh, just published, I think it was September, uh, a paper also on, so the, the research was published in, I think, 2021. Um, we have more research that has been accepted on, um, uh, as of last week that will get published on what happens when the vaccines are directly added to the blood. That's taken a year and a half to get a publisher that will accept that. Um, but the Green Journal just published uh, a paper on uh, human papillomavirus HPV and its effect causing heart disease. And in that paper, that paper itself quotes 
the research that we completed and the original theory from 1995. So those are positive moves on the medical community's part, recognizing that now data is coming out to help lead. Um, so as a PhD, MD, JD, one of the things I, I typically start my presentations by pointing out is that PhDs solve problems. MDs treat problems and JDs cause problems. So MDs by and large are not designed and know how to do research. In fact, most of them don't. They know how to memorize a large amount of material and to treat once it's presented to them. <clears throat> um, we, we, we dealt with this when HIV came out, when I was a medical student, we've dealt with it in other and other sources. So really what I did was in January of 2020, at the same time that I was sick with Wuhan HE1, um, I began looking at the published data that existed about viral infections and treatment of viral infections. And I began looking at the ways in which you would treat not only an infection of a virus and its ability to reproduce itself, but also the inflammation and blood clotting, because that was the theory that I brought out in 94. So I had to reconcile the potential consequences of that. And so I set out <clears throat> to, it took about three and a half, four months. I think we launched the study in April. So it took me that amount of time to do the research and investigate and, and decide to do the study. And then what we did is we randomly, uh, we had 10 different treatments. We had 11 originally. I dropped one out of concerns for that particular drug, I wish I would have uh, retrospectively, I wish I would have kept it <clears throat> in the in the drug treatment protocol, but we didn't, it was a decision that you, you made at the time. And then people were uh, brought into the study at, at several different study sites. Uh, there were criteria for getting in, you had to have a positive PCR and you had to have certain symptoms. And then the first phase of the study, the first three days was you were given an option as an outpatient, you've got an infection. There's four potential treatment regimens to use. <clears throat> if you want a drug treatment regimen, you will get randomly assigned to one of the four. Um, and if you don't want that, um, then you won't get any treatment. But in three days, everybody's brought back because that's the timeline it would take to see if any of these drugs would have a benefit on somebody and also a very good timeline for following people with infectious diseases to see if they get better. That's just simply the amount of time it takes for the innate system to kick in, <clears throat> the, the T cell part of the system to kick in and make a decision. Um, those individuals, when they were brought back in, uh, were evaluated. Were they better? You know, I mean, 60% of the people that chose no treatment got better on their own. Right. So I could have given them any drug in the world and that drug would have been interpreted as it works. But the reality was they got better, period. I mean, I could have waved a yellow Flemish flag in front of them and could have concluded waving a yellow Flemish flag, flag in front, front of people. Sixty percent of the people get better. Right. Um, but it, that's not a measurement. That's not an outcome. So yeah, you can't you, but all you can do is say 60% got better without any treatment. Um, and we did look at the comorbidities, all the other inflammatory thrombotic responses, and a lot of things. I mean, it was a massive paper in the end. Um, and then um, we did, we, we basically broke into two parts. The first part was 
if you got ill enough that you got diagnosed with COVID, the inflammatory thrombotic disease, where you were desaturating and there were other problems going on, you get admitted. Then Fleming method was done to evaluate the extent of tissue injury. Uh, in this case, from from the infection and the inflammation, of blood clotting, you got randomly assigned to one of ten drug treatments, um, and in three days you were reevaluated. Again, with Fleming method. Now, we did other things along the way. We did electrocardiograms. We did electrolytes. We did renal kidney function. We did all of that. We did CBCs. We monitor all of that stuff. Um, but in three days, you get repeat Fleming method because it's the only patented currently quantitative method for finding out what's going on at tissue level. And if you got better, that we define this equals better. Uh, then you were simply left on that drug. If you got worse, as we defined it, that first drug got taken off and you got randomly given another drug. Didn't We wouldn't know which one until you get randomly assigned. And if you didn't get better or worse, at the end of three days, we randomly assigned a new drug added to the first. And we kept that up until either you got better or you died. Um, okay, now let me... people. Can I can I break in for one second? Okay. Sure. Well, the reason why I came to this party was I wanted to find out what you've done with your JD, right? And I think that we can mm -hmm. all agree okay. that there were tremendous crimes committed and that there are many, many people splitting hairs about exactly what the heck went on. Uh, but what I what mm -hmm. I want to hear mm -hmm. is about your progress with your uh, legal stuff. And I, I, ideally you'd give us some hopeful, uh, information about that. So respectfully, you know, your research is one piece of a, a very large pie. There are thousands of people with information like this and the evidence against these psychopaths seems conclusive to me. And I'm a layman compared to you, but I mean, I don't think we need any more research to take these people to tasks. And the only, uh, the only thing I'm interested in is what to do about the criminals. So please address that. Okay. So James, um, it, it, I'll, I'll be happy to continue with that answer. At, no, I, mean, at point in time. It, I want to stay focused to what uh, Dr. Yoho wants on this one. Um, absolutely. That, that so, goes to treating the symptoms and, and Dr. Yoho's question. Right. I absolutely agree right. with, um, you know, how right. do we, how do we He's, stop? The, is there an email right. is there an email way to put your 10 letters in place and james knows how to set up those emails no he's got it all set up he's, okay. he's got it all right. set up just go, go to ahead. 10 letters right yeah. so yeah 10 letters.org is already set up now we prefer that you not do email because it's very easy for an email to be dismissed got it i mean you know i get a couple thousand emails a day um, and, and if you're getting through to me uh it's it's by happenstance i i, I think in some instances um, so emails are easy for them to discard. They don't feel any pain, just delete, you know, uh, it's impersonal, but, uh, what we'd prefer that people do is you go to 10 letters.org, you click on that site and it, and it will open it up and it will, if you scroll to the bottom, you hit build letter. It puts I've together got a, a I got a, letter. I'm getting a noise problem. I got to shut it off, but go ahead with your explanation. Okay. Okay. So you, you simply fill out your name, your address, which will also include your state. And then what that does is it allows uh, you to, it will build a cover letter addressed to the attorney general and the governor of your state. And then you go to the top and you, and you click on the indictment letter and you download that. And then you print the cover letter and the indictment letter. 
off and you mail that into your governor and your attorney general. And what that does is it then gives them something solid that they're receiving in the mail. And the goal is to have several thousands into each attorney general to allow them to be notified by the people who elected them. And in some instances, the people who didn't elect them, obviously, but the registered voters in the state that they want the attorney general to take a look at the information to take that objective information that shows that gain-of-function crimes were committed, and then to convene a real grand jury. Now, part of the problem has been the use of the term grand jury as if, you know, having social media and talking about this and doing podcasts or meeting in the public park at the town square as a grand jury, there is no such thing as a grand jury of the people. That That is... It does not exist. Uh, it may be great uh, in in movie context uh, for somebody writing writing a movie for you to watch, but in the reality of the United States, that that doesn't exist. Grand juries are like juries, except they have a special task. So a jury, you don't go to the public park and and decide whether we're going to hang people anymore or whether you're going to fine them for for driving too fast. You have to go to a court. There's a jury of people that, you know, are registered voters that, you know, they get their, their essentially a summons that says you will appear for, for jury duty. And the same thing happens for the grand juries. And the, the difference is, is that the grand jury uh, tend to uh, work for a longer period of time. They have one and only one job. That is for the prosecuting attorney, which is either a district attorney or an attorney general to walk into the room and say, grand jury, ladies and gentlemen, I have this evidence that I would like to present you today that shows that person X, Y, and Z committed these crimes. And when we leave here, you will either be convinced that I have enough evidence as a prosecuting attorney that we should uh, indict these people. In other words, we should formally charge them with crimes which means they will be notified that they are being charged with a criminal offense and they will need to get their attorneys in place because this will be going to court. And then the legal process begins. Um, they will be put on notice. The general public will be put on notice and the world <clears throat> will be put on notice because once a grand jury uh, submits and gives a letter for indictment, that trial is going to happen. Everything else at that point in time is going to come to a standstill because the prosecuting attorneys will start issuing documents that say no evidence can be destroyed. Um, you, you need to have an attorney present with you. We will be <clears throat> questioning you. We will be getting your emails. We will be getting your phone mails. We'll be coming to your office and documenting whatever we need to do. Uh, we will be talking to people about you. James, you had a question. You put your finger. Yes, I, I believe there is an enormous amount of misinformation, and maybe it's me that's misinformed. the The key to the grand jury process is that the prosecutor can ignore it. If if no. if the, if the if the grand jury says that um, 
yes, we feel you have enough information to indict it. The key to all of this is the prosecutor um, wanting to have backup to um, bring the case to uh, you know court. Um, right. The problem is convincing the prosecutors to get involved in this you know this legal process, and no. and and that's why the letters go to the attorney general. Right. Right. So the the first step is up to the attorney general whether they want to take it to a grand jury. That's the step that that we're dealing with. Once a grand jury says yes, we are issuing a letter for an indictment, the prosecuting attorney no longer has a choice. <clears throat> they are stuck with it. So the task is to get the prosecuting attorney, whether that be an attorney general or a district attorney, to take that information to a grand jury. <clears throat> so what's going to motivate? Well, essentially, you've got two different groups of prosecutors. One are the attorneys who think something's gone wrong and want to prosecute. And it's very clear that what they're needing are support of the people. They need to be able to say to anybody who criticizes them, look, I've got 20,000 letters here from the people of Texas. And they want, they want me to take this to a grand jury. Now, I've got 20,000 people. You can't stop me from doing it. Now I can turn around to the general press, mainstream media, whoever, and I can say, I am doing the job that I took an oath to take. The people of Texas in this instance elected me. I'm doing my job. <clears throat> so if you don't like it, that's too bad. I'm doing the job I was elected to do. And when they walk in with the, to, to a grand jury with, and they say, look, there's 20,000 people here who, who, here's the evidence. The grand jury's undoubtedly going to say indict. Now, there's another group of attorney generals and, and district attorneys who don't want, and they're looking for every reason under the sun to avoid this. Uh, it's not a state issue. Well, it is. Um, there's enough dead people and maimed people in every state in this country to affect every state in this country, right? So that that doesn't hold water. And we've watched some of these cute comments come up, and it's like, please, AGs, please send these letters stating it's not a state issue because when we get our letters for indictment, I'm hanging on to the to the letters that say this is not a state issue. And you can believe when I tell you I'm going to expose those people. Go ahead. Um, the two, two questions, I believe. Um, the grand juries have subpoena power. And part of it is, you know, generally that's done in secret and whoever they may be investigating. Um, that's part of, you know, a, a way to collect, you know, officially. Um, data, uh, information, evidence for the uh, possible case. And uh, you, you're mentioning um, state attorneys general. Are you also um, dealing with federal um, district attorneys as well? So we are, we're not currently looking at the federal attorneys. And the problem for that is I think there's, there's a conflict of interest. Um, the federal system for the, for the parties that would be the defendants, Fauci, Callan, a variety of people that work in the federal government, along with Gates and, and other people, um, would probably have to be defended by the federal government. <laughs> That's the attorneys that would have to defend them, right? So 
there's a conflict of interest for the federal uh, uh, Department of Justice to both prosecute and defend a case. Um, that that would be, I think, a first, or at least a very significant first of this type of, of situation. Go ahead. That that gets into um, uh, information that's been presented on uh, uh, Catherine Watts' uh, bailiwick um, Substack. Um, it, this will be my last question because I do have to go. Um, it does appear that the criminals are government agencies, um, Department of Defense, Health and Human Services. Um, you know, they're deeply embedded <clears throat> in the crime. Everyone focuses on Fauci and you know Collins and all the others, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but you know the the crime um and and this is what happened with the um Pfizer um um court case where they basically revealed that um it, it's it's not just Pfizer Pfizer is doing the bidding of the defense department in in doing sort of like a model you know test case and the the legal structure of it is that in the emergency use authorizations the 360 BBB, I think it's um, dash K, um, literally says, um, yes, this is authorized for emergency use, but under that legislation, uh, under that code, um, it's not a clinical trial. And, and so they're using all of these legal maneuvers of, of the laws that have been put in place that arguably the things that they're doing, um, the, the criminal is actually the government. And, and so exactly yeah. what you said, if you charge someone who is, um, you know, involved in that criminality, um, the legal, you know, Justice Department or Attorney's General Office is is bringing the government and, 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 and their, you know, people that are involved in the government. This is a crime of the government against the people, yeah. not just independent actors. So that'll well, be my last question. Yeah. I'll, I'll hang around for the answer and then I have to sure. go. Thank you so much. Sure, um, and I appreciate you know that that question and that and and you really kind of hit on a couple important issues. One is the defensibility of uh, these consequences, whether it's the vaccines or whatever. I, as a JD, if I were you know if somebody said Fleming, we want you to come in and defend these guys on the vaccines. Um, everybody here is going to hate me for this, but I could defend it if there's not a gain of function crime that led up to it because I could use many of the, many of the issues that you just claimed as defensible reasons. Okay. They're doing their job. They're, you know, it's when you know that they've broken a crime and that's where we get to the gain of function. That's why that's the critical thing. Um, one of the concerns I have and as a, as an attorney is that the more people go, throwing garbage to the court, and I call it garbage because it won't stick. It's not going to stick. It doesn't. Um, I understand what people are talking about, but you have to, if you're going to uh, address a problem, you have to think about it from what is the way you can address the problem versus what do you want to do? You know, people want to do a lot of things, but it doesn't mean it's going to be successful, right? Um, so you have to think about it. And once you once you address the criminal action of gain of function, yes, it's going to be clearly unless unless NIAID, for example, is going to say, we had no idea this money was going out to these people. Anthony Fauci said that 
No, Anthony Fauci is not the only person who looks at this at NIAID. So that's why when you see on this indictment letter, you'll see after all the names it says, there's a little statement that says anybody else that is found to be criminally culpable in the process of obtaining the evidence is going to be added to the list of defendants. You know, that's it. And that's how it works. And the defendants that were picked out are the people that, you know, more than likely are going to start throwing other people under the bus because they'd really like to not end up with the full-term consequence of, of, of their actions. You know, Redfield's not on there, but Redfield isn't out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination as far as I'm concerned. Because if you're heading up CDC and you leave that position and the first thing you tell the media is, well, while I was there, I never once really uh, thought it was uh, a naturally occurring uh, virus. Uh, and I am a virologist. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to put you on the stand, buddy, and we're going to have fun um, because I'm going to ask, well, if that was the case and you were in charge of the CDC and your obligation is to address this problem for the people and you were of the the presumption that this was not a naturally occurring phenomenon, uh, what's your rationale for not pursuing this further and or making the general public of the United States and or the president of the United States and or the Department of Justice aware of the fact that there were biological viral weapons being developed? And I'm just going to sit back and let you bury yourself. Similar to Burke's um, saying, oh, we knew it wasn't going to work, you know, after mm. you know, she's got a book yeah. to sell. Thank you so much, um, Robert and, and um, Dr. P um, Fleming. Appreciate it. Um, I look forward to um, talking to you all again. Um, thank you so much. Okay. Bye, I James. I appreciate your being here. Thank you. So the thing that I'd like to focus on is any progress you've made since uh, I saw you mm -hmm. in Sacramento. And I've sort of followed you peripherally, but I'm I'm a simple thinker, and I want to know where you've got the chisel in the wall of this dam. And I think if you bring down one of these people, the, the floodwaters will break and it'll mm -hmm. all come out. Yeah, so we are um, we are working with several of the attorney generals behind the scenes, um, and and the process that we are doing right now is an educational process of providing the information of trying to help them understand how they would have to formulate a case to actually win it, and the challenges that they have, and the and the evidence that they have to address those challenges. So for these AGs, that's what we're doing right now. So we, 10letters.org is the way for the general public to get this pushed through all the AGs. And of course, the more those letters that go in, the easier it's going to be for these AGs that we're working with to say, well, it is very clear that the people want something done, so we have their support. Uh, the AGs also know that they need a certain number of them uh, effectively to stand up across the board because history has taught us that usually when somebody comes out like an attorney general, uh, there's opposition to them and then they go after them with a dominant attack and they go trying to, if they can't find something, they'll make something. And so these AGs have that additional task of getting enough of them together, coalesce. And that means enough of them feeling that they have the support of the people in their state and now the evidence. So my job as I'm dealing with this from an attorney perspective, because, again, 
I'm just a regular attorney, so I can't prosecute. <clears throat> regular attorneys can't prosecute. You have to be a prosecuting attorney. You have to be a district attorney or an attorney general. Any other attorney who leads you to believe that they are filing criminal charges on these people are, are misleading you because I can't file criminal charges on anybody. Okay. No other attorney can unless they're a prosecuting attorney. So my job in this current stage of the development is to encourage the general public through 10letters.org to send these documents into the AGs and the governors to demonstrate the people want this to happen. And for me to also then be working with these AGs to educate them on, on a topic that they're not any more familiar with than the general public. Viruses, gain of function, biological, viral weapons, evidence that proves that this was done, uh, how to connect all the dots so that they know when they present it, A, to the grand jury, and then B, when they take it to trial, they know what they're up against and they can lay out a clean, concise case that doesn't get lost in the weeds, doesn't have all the distractions that people want to throw at it, and they stay focused on gain of function from beginning to end and lay it out. That's the job for them to win. That's the criminal actions and the crimes that were violated. And once that occurs, everything else essentially falls like dominoes because all the defenses for all of the consequences go bye-bye when you realize that these are all the consequences of criminal actions. So changing the gain of function into a military weaponization, that's the critical issue. Is that correct or not? Sorry to treat you like a hostile well, witness there, Dr. Fleming. No, 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 no. I mean, the, the, uh, the issue is demonstrating gain of function. The military, um, I'm not going to, suggest what the military should or shouldn't use for its its defense uh, but it was against the law it any, was against the, this was against the law since uh obama signed whatever it was he signed they're they're not allowed to do it is that the so, central okay, so, crux of the issue no no um the central crux of the issue is that the viruses that they produced or in violation of the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty. Gain of function is how they did that. And, and Obama signed something that was under pressure from scientists and physicians to stop doing gain of function, but that was only about three to four years. And the, you know several of the parties like uh, Barrick and, and uh, Dayback were exempted from that. And in fact, they had input on, onto those documents that were written. Um, so the gain of function is the way they got there. But the laws that were broken were the development of biological agents that could be used for work. And again, when was that uh, treaty or document? That When was that uh, instituted? So the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty was 1975. And the uh, 18 U.S.C. 175 was under the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989. And so, in other words, the treaty was ratified into U.S. law by the uh, second thing you mentioned. No, well, no. Uh, so treaties are, have to be signed and ratified. So they have to be signed by the president and they have to be ratified by Congress. So in 1975, they were, uh, roughly that period of time, they were signed and ratified. 
Now, a treaty is, according to Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, the supreme law of the land, and treaties then have three things that, that go along with them. They have something called declarations, reservations, and understanding. A declaration, when made by Congress, has no impact on a treaty. Uh, if Congress places a reservation or an understanding on a treaty, then it says we're going along with the treaty as law of the land with these reservations and understandings. So that's where you get into the other treaties that have been, you know, top of the uh, discussion list with WHO because there are reservations and understandings on these. However, the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty had no reservations or understandings applied to it by Congress. So it became the law of the land when Congress ratified it originally. Congress also, for a variety of reasons, and it was under the Biological Terrorism Act, added that in that Terrorism Act as one of the specific components it was recognizing in a federal statute or law, in addition to the fact that it violates treaties. Well, that that's, uh, helps me clarify my thinking about this because to, I'm essentially a layman, obviously, in uh, uh, legal terms. And I, to me, the the violation of uh, statutes is almost secondary to all the obvious, uh, you know, all the incredible issues that have occurred. But this is the chink in their armor is the uh, is that treaty, and and that's the thing that can't be defeated in court if you if it's properly defended. Correct. Correct. They clearly violated it. In fact, if you look at, and and, and some of the language is, is very specific. Um, I think, let me, yeah, let me read this. Under 18 USC, uh, so that means US code, so uh, chapter 18, United States Code section 175, uh, which has the title of prohibitions with respect to biological weapons. Um, under Section B, it's very clear, and, and this is one of the reasons uh, why I don't really care whether they want to play with bats out of caves. The point is they took them out of the cave and took them to the lab and experimented on them, and that's how they started modifying this virus. Because under uh, additional offense, it specifically states, whoever knowingly possesses any biological agent toxin or delivery system of a type or inequality that under the circumstances is not reasonably justified by a prophylactic, protective, bona fide research or other peaceful purpose shall be fined under this title, imprisoned not more than 10 years or both. In this subsection, the term biological agent and toxin do not encompass any biological agent or toxin that is in its naturally occurring environment if the biological agent or toxin has not been cultivated, collected, or otherwise extracted from its natural source. So they can play all the games they want to. Clearly what came out of those caves were extracted and manipulated from their natural source. And then you have all the other data that goes on to that. So it doesn't matter. See, this is from a legal perspective. You want to look at every place that they're going to try and find a defense. And then you want to have that answer for them. Oh, you want to play that game? Let's talk about how 
these viruses got pulled out of bat caves that you had to truck out to go get that weren't anywhere near human beings. You brought them to the lab and you started playing with it. Yeah, you, you, you kind of violated this, guys. The general public can see that. Okay, so you don't want to do that one. Now let's look at the fact that you actually have published papers and research that shows this gain of function that you did to it to make it more effective, more harmful. And who paid for that? Yeah, half of it was paid for by a group of people whose function is to go to war. Not sell Girl Scout cookies or not popcorn with the Boy Scouts. This is, it's interesting. I never realized the importance of that. It to a layman like me, that's almost in the back in the rear view mirror and all the criminal activity that has gone on since then seems, uh, if anything, uh, more dramatic and important, but, uh, tell, tell me again, uh, help me, uh, have a little optimism here about, uh, what, what you've been doing. Do you, you got any of these guys who have actually stood up and taken an interest in what you're saying? I mean, you've been working on this for a year, at least more. Yeah, no, we de <clears throat> look, we definitely have several of these AGs that are very, very interested at this point in time. What we are doing is figuring out how we can bring this forward. You know, they they have certain hurdles that they have to deal with to bring it out. And part of their hurdles is understanding it themselves. So what we're doing is educating, providing documents, showing where the crimes are clearly committed so they can so they know. As attorneys, as prosecuting attorneys, okay, I can win this case. <clears throat> then the question is getting the support that they need from the people. Now, I can stand here and scream as long as I want to, and I don't scream. If I do scream, you're in trouble. Um, <clears throat> but if the general public stands up and gets behind these prosecutors and supports them, or for the prosecutors who don't want to do it, there's enough of them that they just embarrass them. Then when the other attorney generals start to file these indictments in these cases, then there will be other attorney generals that might not want to file it, who realize it's in their best interest to file because it will look very bad on them if they're not participating in a case like this. And history has is written all over this. <clears throat> Well, you know, I understand we need a general like you who can understand the scope of the entire war and not just a, a regional conflict. But my question to you is whether you have some <clears throat> lieutenants who are more uh, who think in more basic terms and who can deliver your messages in a convincing manner to laymen like me. You, you know what I mean? So, I mean, you're you're a, you're a complex thinker and you, you know, so tell me the answer to that. Do you have attorneys that help are helping you who are who are sort of like trial attorneys who whose job is to translate complex material for uh, dummies? <laughs> you know, it's true. Um, I have a lot of people that are um, behind the scenes doing taking the information I have given to them, and then they are talking to other like district attorneys and that type of thing. So they are, in that sense, acting as lieutenants and captains in, in, in that process of explaining. Um, and clearly, you know, we are in the educational process, but that is a much better place than we were a year ago, where I was having to say, you know, you need to focus on this specific issue, these other things. And, and we watch this. 
we've watched a year, year and a half of people filing civil suits and, and they're really not winning anything. And, and in fact, what they're doing is they're annoying the judges and the judges are saying, we're getting tired of this. We're getting tired of hearing the topic. We're getting tired of the complaining. Um, no, we're done with you. We're just done with you. And, and, the, and the cases that people think are successes, they're, they're not successes. I mean, I look at this, this Missouri AG case where they got depositions from Fauci. And I have to tell you, as an attorney, you know, I, I, I listen to everybody's excitement and level of, yeah, they're going to get Fauci uh, a deposition. Uh, you know what that did? It really uh, lost the luster of what happens if you get Fauci in deposition for a criminal case because, okay, he's been deposed and that starts to take away uh, the way he would respond in a deposition. Number one, uh, you, you know, the, the more you depose somebody, <clears throat> the more they get used to the process. If they've never been deposed before, you react much differently than if you've been deposed a number of times. Um, you can see, I mean, just, do a comparison, for example, of, of Anthony Fauci uh, uh, in front of Senator Dr. Rand Paul a year and a half ago compared to now. I mean, a year and a half ago, it looked like the man at the top of the NIAID was going to have a stroke while he was being asked questions. Now, he's much more comfortable with retorting back. Um, he's thought about some of his defenses. He he knows how to how to. Uh, play the audience, if you will, to respond to it. Um, and that deposition that was done in Missouri added nothing. I mean, it added nothing. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. Hey, you know, that's a great answer. I don't remember. Were Rand, were Rand Paul's uh, uh, questions softball in some ways? I've heard that point. Um, Dr. Rand Paul does not quite have the data that he needs right now to know what specific questions he should be asking. I mean, he's 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 heard the terms gain of function and he's seen some of the papers. But, you know, if you if you listen to the questions that he's asking, what does he have? He has about three or four major papers that he asked questions. I've got fifteen hundred. Well, before I uh, let you wrap this thing up and uh, add whatever you'd like at the end of the thing, I want to dismiss the medical boards because they are ruled or in, in a very strong way by the uh, Federation of State Medical Boards, which is a central organization which has mysterious funding. So they're they're somehow funded by the globalists or or some. I mean, it's it's crazy, and they don't say where their funding comes from. So uh, I, I don't think we have much hope for, for the medical boards, although you did cite a couple that seem to be moving in the right direction. But anyway, wrap it up and tell us whatever you whatever message you think is important. And uh, if you can inject a ray of hope into this process, it'd be great. But don't don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, the ray of hope is, is very specific. If, we, if you're tired of watching what's happening, there is a mechanism for dealing with this. It was laid out by the founding fathers. And it's very clear. It's utilizing the prosecuting attorneys under the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments to the Constitution, where the attorney generals in the states, and they have demonstrated their ability to do this repeatedly, can file for indictments to hold criminals accountable that the federal government may not go after. 
And it's the states that, after all, determine what happens in this country. I mean, this the, the U.S. Constitution is a compact agreement between the states and a federal government. Nothing more, nothing less in reality. So the states are where the people's voices are heard. And everybody who's listening to this can send in on 10letters.org the cover letter and the indictment letter to their attorney general and their governor and drive this. We're at about 3,000 letters right now. About three weeks ago, we were about 2,000 letters. We are accelerating. And the more these letters get into the hands of these AGs and these governors, the more pressure they feel. And the fact that we even get letters from the AGs who don't want to file stating, taking a page and a half to say, well, this really isn't our concern. That means they're under pressure. That means somebody said, you write a letter back and respond to this. And that we're just at the beginning of inundating these people. The goal is to inundate these people with enough letters from the people to remind them that the people want these criminals to be indicted. And these criminals will have their day in court. Believe me, they'll have the best lawyers that money can buy. And we're going to have the best lawyers that are there to provide for the, the protection of the U.S. people. But we're going to provide the evidence that those attorneys need to nail the coffin in the tomb of these criminal actions. Well, that's inspiring. And it, it's a little discouraging <clears throat> to think that the civil actions, which seem to me like whack-a-mole, are, are not as productive as they look. So, Not at all. In fact, they're destructive. I wish, I wish people would quit doing it. Um, <clears throat> I wish um, they would not allow uh, the distractors and uh, the forces that be to uh, quit unfocusing the people. It's, it's important that people focus on the critical criminal action that occurred. And once you take that down, everything that's a consequence of that falls on its own. And at that point in time, you can have at the civil litigation system till your heart's content. You're going to have a, a, an ability to win. Imagine going into court in a new era where the opening comment is, we know that there were criminal actions that these gain-of-function viruses violated the law and were criminal actions. And the consequence of that was A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And that's what we're here to talk about today, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, because the criminal courts have already proven these defendants violated the law. And now we're here to get the, 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 the best we can for the people that have been harmed. Do you have any final I'm just throwing this out in case you're interested in saying something, but don't feel compelled to comment about this. Um, David Martin seems to have pursued a strategy similar to yours. We haven't heard too much from him lately. Um, is he making progress and is it the same, uh, exactly the same thing or close? I never speak for another human being. Okay, good. That's fine. I, 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 okay. So, uh, Dr. Richard Fleming, I'm grateful for your time, and uh, I, I'm i going to fill out my uh, letters and get my platform and uh, hopefully uh, James's platform to do the same. So thanks again. Perfect. Thank you. My okay. pleasure to be here.